This is Beyond Texas, where we look at people who change the world, or at least they're part of it. I'm your host and storyteller, W.F. Strong. Welcome back. I have to tell you about an interesting job, uh, something personal, uh, an interesting job I got recently. I was hired by Kevin Costner's new internet company to do travel narrations for this new travel app. It's called Here Here, H-E-A-R-H-E-R-E. Only available on Apple phones right now, but later they'll roll it out to more. The idea behind it is that as you travel and hit certain GPS coordinates five minutes ahead of a, of an interesting historical or cultural site, a story will kick in on your phone and tell you all about it. For instance, if you were a few minutes away from the Alamo, I might pop in with a brief, light, story-based history of the site, three to four minutes long only. Kevin Costner does some stories himself, particularly those about Yellowstone. John Lithgow has done a great number. And there's me and other narrators who are not so well-known. I've been doing stories over the past few weeks for Washington, D.C., Boston, Miami. It's fun. You never know. Someday when you're driving across America, I might suddenly pop up on your phone or car sound system to tell you a story about the town just ahead. Of course, you'll most likely hear me if you drive across Texas. They'll be using a great number of my Texas stories on the app. Again, it's called Here Here. You can check it out yourself on the Internet. I like their slogan, Every place has a story, and now every story has a place. Well, let's get to our story today. Our story today is about Frank Abagnale Jr., one of the top ten con men of all time. I like reading about grifters. I always say, you can learn a lot from a con man. You can learn to do legitimately what they fake, and you will become more influential and more persuasive. I think it was maybe 10 years ago now that I came across a wonderful collection of books called The Library of Larceny. Isn't that a great title? The Library of Larceny. It was a collection of six books about grifters, con artists. Now, I'll pause here to explain the term con men. It does not mean ex-con or ex-convict, as some people think. It means confidence men, people who gain your confidence and trust in order to swindle you. Women can be con men, too, but typically the whole group of con artists, male and female, are called grifters. Well, the Library of Larceny had a splendid book about Willie Sutton. He was the bank robber famous for one answer to a reporter's question. The reporter asked, why do you rob banks, Willie? He said, because that's where the money is. Willie Sutton's nickname was Slick Willie. Bill Clinton was often called Slick Willie. But Slick Willie was not called that because he was good at robbing banks. He was slick because no prison could hold him. He was a phenomenal escape artist, and one of his most ingenious escapes involved getting a guard's uniform and walking out the front gate. He was also known as the actor because he loved disguises. For robbing banks, he loved the power of uniforms, especially cop uniforms. Willie started out as a safe cracker, but the technology outpaced him, so when you can't break the safe's code, you break the person with the code. 
In his new approach to robbing banks, Willie had two strategies, authenticity and audacity. He dressed up like a cop to give him authenticity, and then he'd rob a bank that was near a police station to have the employee's false sense of security on his side. Bank employees always felt no robber would hold up a bank one block from the police station, but he would. He'd typically tap on the front door of the bank before it opened, getting the attention of the one employee there. He'd be in his beautiful blue police uniform. When the employee would open the door a crack and say, Yes, officer, may I help you? He'd say, This is a little embarrassing, but I'm out here on beat. Nothing's open yet. Uh, uh, May I use your bathroom? Of course, officer. They'd open the door, and he'd take them by surprise and tie them up. Then he'd wait for the next employee and do the same and the next until the bank manager would arrive who could open the safe. He'd cut all the telephone lines and then lock everybody in the bank, using the bank's good strong bars as a prison for them, and then he'd make his getaway. Well, I told you all that to prepare you for Frank Abagnale's story, which is much more remarkable, but has some of the similar traits to it. He, too, believed in the power of uniforms and successfully worked as an airline pilot, a pediatrician, a lawyer, and a college professor. Yes, you may remember that Leonardo DiCaprio starred as Frank in a good movie about him 20 years ago. It was good, but it did not cover the most fascinating nuances of his career, you might say, that are covered in his book, Catch Me If You Can. And I will cover those nuances here in telling his story. Whenever I think about Frank Abagnale's success as an imposter, I think of the book by Irving Goffman, Presentation of Self in Everyday Life. He was a psychologist who said that we, all of us, play roles, just like actors on the stage. If you're a judge on the bench, you have a costume, robes. You have a script, the law. You have a cast around you, bailiffs, attorneys, etc. You even have a stage, a a raised platform from which you rule. (laughs) Goffman said that no matter your station in life, you play a role that has a script and a costume and entrances and exits. You have a front stage self and a backstage self. The The front stage self is your public self. For instance, when you first start dating... Uh, all your new love sees is the best of you because you only allow them to see the front stage self. You don't let them backstage to see you without your costume, without your facade, to see your true messy self until you feel confident that it won't frighten them away. Well, Frank Abagnale understood all this intuitively. He said, I was an independent actor, writing, producing, and directing my own script. He started out just wanting a free ride on airplanes to go to fun places and see the world. It was the 1960s, and the jet-set life was newly underway. There was incredible trust built into the system, and those elites were not ready for someone as audacious as Frank. Frank recalled, I was pioneering a scam that was so impossible, so seemingly implausible, and so brass-balled blatant that it worked. He first set about getting a Pan Am pilot's uniform. How do you do that? Well, 
The easiest way is to go to Pan Am and get one. Frank called up Pan Am in New York, and he said that he was a pilot in town from California, and that somehow his uniform had been stolen. Could he get a replacement, perhaps? Well, the Pan Am office said, sure. What's your name? He told the manager his name, and the manager said, go down to Taylor, to the Taylors at such and such address, and tell them we sent you. They'll fix you up. So he did, and they gave him a uniform, as easy as that. He noticed it didn't have the wings and other metal insignia that proved he was a pilot. He asked about it. The tailor said, oh, we don't have those here. You have to get those from the main office. So he wore his new uniform into the main office and asked about the insignia. They showed him a room full of them and said, Help yourself. So he did. Now he had a costume. He needed an FAA license badge. He had one made. Costume and accessories complete. He was now pilot Frank Williams. He said there's enchantment in a uniform, especially one that marks the wearer as a person of rare skills, courage, or achievement. As he walked through LaGuardia, he felt good. He recalled, My Pan Am pilot's uniform commanded respect and esteem. Men looked at me admiringly and enviously. Pretty women smiled at me. Airport policemen nodded courteously. Pilots and stewardesses smiled and lifted hands in greeting. I was always accepted at par value. I wore the uniform of a Pan Am pilot. Therefore, I must be a Pan Am pilot. During the next five years, he said, I became addicted to the uniform. It was my alter ego. Frank didn't actually fly planes. Well, he did just once. Just once, a uh, uh, captain asked him to take over while he went to the restroom. So Frank hopped in the seat, and he had watched long enough that he just put it on autopilot and prayed for the pilot to come back. But that was the only time he ever did that, and it scared him to death. Mostly, he was just interested in getting free rides on the airline industry courtesy jump seats that were available to all pilots across all airlines. Frank just showed up in his uniform and flashed his FAA license, and if the seat was free, he was off to L.A. or Miami or Hawaii or whatever location he might choose for himself, free, with courtesy meals and beverages. He had the look now, but not the language. He knew that was crucial to carry off the con. In fact, he realized the first time he had a random chat with a TWA co-pilot that he had a huge credibility gap. The pilot asked him what equipment he was flying. Frank had no idea what he meant. He thought and thought about it, and he said, uh, General Electric. He saw the look of incredulity on the airman's face. At that moment, he said to himself, I've got to bone up on airline jargon. The airport itself was the ultimate Berlitz program. Frank hung out at LaGuardia, an airport Pan Am did not use. If asked why he was there, he claimed that he deadheaded in and was going to catch a shuttle over to Kennedy. At LaGuardia, he could listen in on conversations and fill up his notebook with words he needed to know. The other thing he did was call the airlines and pretend to be a college student reporter writing a story on pilots. 
Then he'd talk to a pilot often for an hour on the phone and get his questions answered without arousing suspicion. He kept a surreptitious journal in which he said, I jotted down phrases, technical data, miscellaneous information, names, dates, places, anything that might prove helpful. Expressions like glidescopes, deadheading, fuel consumption rates, airport identifier codes. So he had his costume and his language and the right look and the right attitude, and off he went into the wild blue yonder. From the jump seat, he listened in on pilot chat and added to his lexicon. He may have been a con man, but he wasn't a lazy one. He did his homework. The next problem or challenge was that he got to go to all these exotic places, but he had no money to party properly when he was there. He did have free lodging. He'd stay at the Pan Am hotels where they constantly leased rooms for pilots and stewardesses. I'll just use the 60s language there. He realized that he needed to get on the payroll of Pan Am. He needed to get paid for being a fake pilot. Well, he wasn't that good yet. He wasn't yet the master forger he would become. But he did discover that there was an incredible courtesy of check cashing for pilots that extended across airlines and hotels connected to the airlines. Frank had personal checks made for himself, Frank Williams, and then began cashing the checks at airlines all over. He learned that in one airport, he could just go down the row of airline service counters and cash checks one after another because, well, he was a pilot, and he had a uniform and an FAA license. The checks he cashed were not small either, $600, $800. That was huge money in the 60s. He learned the banking routing code so that he would use New York checks in L.A., for instance. That way they'd go for collection to the furthest distance from him and give him time to clear the area. He'd deposit his cash hauls and bank deposit boxes, somewhat ironically. Later in life, he said he had so many of them that he couldn't remember where they all were. Somewhere, he said, probably in several banks, there's money still waiting for me. Frank had a great time for a bit over a year flying free and hanging out with other pilots and stewardesses, but then his luck ran out, or seemed to have run out. He was sitting on the jump seat of a plane about to push away from the terminal when the tower asked if he were there and asked for his FAA license number. Why they wanted it was a mystery, but they didn't follow up, so that seemed to be the end of it. But when the plane landed in Miami, two Miami-Dade sheriff deputies were there to take him into questioning at the station. It was Friday evening, and that's an important detail. He went along peacefully, but with an air of indignation. The deputies got him in a room and explained that there was someone at some federal agency who was questioning about whether or not he was actually a Pan Am pilot. With exasperation, he threw his FAA badge and pilot's license on the table, and he said, You tell me who I work for. Well, they apologized and said, We just have to keep you here until the FBI come. And as they waited, one of the officers, an amateur pilot, had a long chat with Frank about flying. It wasn't long until he told his buddy, Somebody is really screwed up here. He's clearly legit. We can't hold him much longer. Then an FBI guy came in and said, I was told to come down here, but actually I'm not clear on who made the complaint. It didn't come from us, so I'm not sure what to do about it. He looked at Frank's credentials and found them sound. He said, well, 
The Pan Am offices are closed in New York. I can't call them. Is there anyone here who can vouch for you? Frank said, I can just give you the names of other pilots I know locally, but they're not Pan Am pilots. You aren't going to hold me here in jail till Monday, are you? If so, I'll have to call an attorney. The FBI agent said, no, this is a mix-up of some type. Give me the numbers for your pilot buddies. I'll check you out. Thirty minutes later, he was released with apologies all around. Frank picked up his travel bag with the $7,000 in cash in the bottom and headed out the door. He went straight to the airport, changed out of his uniform, took the first flight to Atlanta as Tom Lombardi paid cash. And that was the end of his Pan Am career, at least for a while. Next week, I'll introduce you to Dr. Frank Williams, pediatrician. <laughs> 